Section 1 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 13. Section 1. Toro Dutt, 1856-1877 In 1874, there appeared in the Bengal magazine an essay upon Le Conte de Lys, which showed not only an unusual knowledge of French literature, but also decided literary qualities. The essayist was Toro Dutt, a Hindu girl of eighteen, daughter of Govind Chander Dutt, for many years a justice of the peace at Calcutta. The family belonged to the high-caste cultivated Hindus, and Toro's education was conducted on broad lines. Her work frequently discloses charming pictures of the home life that filled the old garden house at Calcutta. Here it is easy to see the studious child poring over French, German, and English lexicons, reading every book she could lay hold of, hearing from her mother's lips those old legends of her race which had been woven into the poetry of native bards long before the civilization of modern Europe existed. In her thirteenth year, Toro and her younger sister were sent to study for a few months in France, and thence to attend lectures at Cambridge and to travel to England. A memory of this visit appears in Toro's little poem, Near Hastings, which shows the impressionable nature of the Indian girl, so sensitive to the romance of an alien race and so appreciative of her friendly welcome to English soil. After four years' travel in Europe, the Dutch returned to India to resume their student life, and Toro began to learn Sanskrit. She showed great aptitude for the French language and a strong liking for the French character, and she made a special study of French romantic poetry. Her essays on the Comte de Lille and Josephine Solare, and a series of English translations of poetry, were the fruit of her labor. The translations, including specimens from Beringer, Théophile Gaultier, François Coupé, Sully Prudhomme, and other popular writers, were collected in 1876 under the title A Sheaf Gleaned in French Fields. A few copies found their way into Europe, and both French and English reviewers recognized the value of the harvest of this clear-sighted gleaner. One critic called these poems in which Toro so faithfully reproduced the spirit of one alien tongue in the forms of another, transmutations rather than translations. But marvelous as is the mastery shown over the subtleties of thought and the difficulties of translation, the achievement remains that of acquirement rather than of inspiration. For Toro's English renditions of the native Indian legends, called Ancient Ballads of Hindustan, give a sense of great original power selected from much-completed work left unpublished at her too early death, these poems are revelations of the Eastern religious thought, which loves to clothe itself in such forms of mystic beauty as haunt the memory and charm the fancy. But in these translations it is touched by the spirit of the new faith which Toro had adopted. The poems remain, however, essentially Indian. The glimpses of lovely landscape, the shining temples, the greening gloom of the jungle, the pink flush of the dreamy atmosphere, are all of the East, as is the philosophic calm that breathes through the verses. The most beautiful of the ballads is perhaps that of Savatri, the king's daughter, 
who by love wins back her husband after he has passed the gates of death. Another, Sidher, retells the old story of that king whose great power is unavailing to avert the penalty which follows the breaking of the Vedic law, even though it was broken in ignorance. Still another, Prahalad, reveals that insight into things spiritual, which characterizes the true seer, or called of God. Two charming legends, Yogaharya Uma and Bhutto, full of the pastoral simplicity of the early Aryan life, and a few miscellaneous poems, complete this volume upon which Toro's fame will rest. A posthumous novel written in French makes up the sum of her contributions to letters. Le Journal de Mademoiselle de Aurès was found completed among her posthumous papers. It is a romance of modern French life, whose motive is the love of two brothers for the same girl. The tragic element dominates the story, and the author has managed the details with extraordinary ease, without sacrificing either dignity or dramatic effect. The story was edited by Mademoiselle Bader, a correspondent of Toro, and her sole acquaintance among European authors. In 1878, the year after the poet's death, appeared a second edition of A Sheep Gleaned in French Fields, containing 43 additional poems, with a brief biographical sketch written by her father. The many translators of the Sakuntala and other Indian dramas show how difficult it is for the Western mind to express the indefinable spirituality of temper that fills ancient Hindu poetry. This remarkable quality Toro wove unconsciously into her English verse, making it seem not exotic but complementary, an echo of that far-off age when the genius of the two races was one. Jogodhaya Uma Shall bracelets ho, shall bracelets ho, Fair maids and matrons coming by. Along the road, in morning's glow, The peddler raised his wanted cry. The road ran straight, a red, red line, To King Gorham, for cream renowned. Through pasture meadows were the kine, In knee-deep grass stood magic bound, And half awake, involved in mist That floated in dun coils profound, Till, by the sudden sunbeams kissed, Rich rainbow hues broke all around. Shall bracelets ho, shall bracelets ho. The roadside trees still dripped with dew and hung their blossoms like a show. Who heard the cry? Twas but a few. A ragged herd boy here and there with his long stick and naked feet. A plowman wending to his care the fields from which he hopes the wheat. An early traveler hurrying fast to the next town. An urchin slow bound for the school. These heard and passed unheeding all. Shall bracelets, ho! Pellucid spread a lake-like tank Beside the road now lonelier still. High on three sides arose the bank Which fruit-trees shadowed at their will. Upon the fourth side was a gat, With its broad stairs of marble white, And at the entrance arch there sat, Full face against the morning light, A fair young woman with large eyes And dark hair falling to her zone. She heard the peddler's cry arise, and eager seemed his wear to own. Shall bracelets ho, see, maiden, see, the rich enamel sunbeam kissed, happy, oh, happy thou shalt be. Let them but clasp that slender wrist, these bracelets are a mighty charm, they keep a lover ever true, and widowhood avert and harm. Buy them, and thou shalt never rue, just try them on. She stretched her hand. Oh, what a nice and lovely fit, 
no fairer hand in all the land, and lo, the bracelet matches it. Dazzled, the peddler on her gazed, till came the shadow of a fear, while she the bracelet arm upraised against the sun to view more clear. Oh, she was lovely, but her look had something of a high command that filled with awe. Aside she shook intruding curls, by breezes fanned and blown across her brows and face, and asked the price, which when she heard she nodded, and with quiet grace for payment to her home referred. But where, O maiden, is thy house? But no, that wrist-ring has a tongue. No maiden art thou, but a spouse, happy and rich and fair and young. Far otherwise, my lord is poor, and him at home thou shalt not find. Ask for my father at the door. Knock loudly, he is deaf but kind. Seest thou that lofty gilded spire above these tufts of foliage green? That is our place. Its point of fire will guide thee o'er the tract between. That is the temple spire. Yes, there we live. My father is the priest. The manse is near, a building fair, but lowly to the temple's east. When thou hast knocked and seen him, say, his daughter at Damasagat shall bracelets bought from thee to-day, and he must pay so much for that. Be sure he will not let thee pass without the value and a meal. If he demure or cry alas, no money hath he, then reveal. Within the small box, marked with streaks of bright vermilion by the shrine, the key whereof has lain for weeks untouched, he'll find some coin. Tis mine. That will enable him to pay the bracelet's price. Now fare thee well, she spoke. The peddler went away, charmed with her voice as by some spell, while she, left lonely there, prepared to plunge into the water pure, and like a rose, her beauty bared, from all observance quite secure. Not weak she seemed, nor delicate, strong was each limb of flexile grace, and full the bust, the mien alat, like hers, the goddess of the chase, on Latmus Hill, and all oh, the face, framed in its cloud of floating hair, no painter's hand might hope to trace the beauty and the glory there. Well might the peddler look with awe, for though her eyes were soft, a ray lit them at times which kings who saw would never dare to disobey. Onward through groves the peddler sped, till full in front the sunlight spire arose before him. Pass which led to gardens trim and gay attire lay all around, and lo, the manse, humble but neat, with open door, he paused and blessed the lucky chance that brought his bark to such a shore. Huge straw ricks, log huts full of grain, sleek cattle, flowers, a tinkling bell, spoke in a language sweet and plain. Here, smiling, peace and plenty dwell. Unconsciously he raised his voice. Shall bracelets ho! And at his voice looked out the priest with eager eye and made his heart at once rejoice. O oh, Saka Peddler, pass not by, but step thou in and share the food just offered on our altar high, if thou art in a hungry mood. Welcome are all to this repast, the rich and poor, the high and low. Come, wash thy feet and break thy fast, then on thy journey, strengthened, go. Oh, thanks, good priest, observance due and greetings. May thy name be blessed. I came on business, 
but I knew here might be had both food and rest without a charge, for all the poor ten miles around thy sacred shrine know that thou keepest open door, and praise that generous hand of thine. But let my errand first be told, for bracelets sold to thine this day, so much thou owest me in gold. Hast thou the ready cash to pay? The bracelets were enamelled, so the price is high. How? Oh, sold to mine? Who brought them, I should like to know? Thy daughter, with a large black eye, now bathing at the marble gat. Loud laughed the priest at this reply. I shall not put up, friend, with that. No daughter in the world have I. An only son is all my stay. Some minx has played a trick, no doubt. But cheer up. Let thy heart be gay. Be sure that I shall find her out. Nay, nay, good father. Such a face could not deceive, I must aver. At all events she knows thy place. And if my father should demure to pay thee, thus she said, or cry he has no money, tell him straight the box vermilion streaked to try that's near the shrine. Well, wait, friend, wait, the priest said thoughtfully, and he ran, and with the open box came back. Here is the price exact, my man, no surplus over, and no lack. How strange, how strange! Oh, blessed art thou to have beheld her, touched her hand, before whom Vishnu's self must bow, and Brahma and his heavenly band. Here have I worshipped her for years, and never seen the vision bright. Vigils and fasts and secret tears have almost quenched my outward sight. And yet that dazzling form and face I have not seen. And thou, dear friend, to thee, unsought for, comes the grace. What may its purpose be, an end? How strange! How strange, O oh, happy thou! And could thou ask no other dune than thy poor bracelet's price? That brow, resplendent as the autumn moon, must have bewildered thee, I trow, and made thee lose thy senses all. A dim light on the peddler now began to dawn, and he let fall his bracelet basket in his haste, and backward ran the way he came. What meant the vision fair and chaste? Whose eyes were they, those eyes of flame? Swift ran the peddler as a hind. The old priest followed on his trace. They reached the gnat, but could not find the lady of the noble face. The birds were silent in the wood. The lotus flowers exhaled a smell faint over all the solitude. A heron as a sentinel stood by the bank. They called in vain. No answer came from hill or fell. The landscape lay in slumber's chain. E'en Echo slept within her shell. Broad sunshine, yet a hush profound, they turned with saddened hearts to go. Then from afar there came a sound of silver bells. The priest said low, Oh, mother, mother, deign to hear, the worship hour has rung. We wait in meek humility and fear. Must we return home desolate? Oh, come, as late thou camest unsought, or was it but some idle dream? Give us some sign, if it was not, a word, a breath, or passing gleam. Sudden from out the water sprung a rounded arm, on which they saw, as high the lotus buds among it rose, the bracelet white with awe. 
Then a wide ripple tossed and swung the blossoms on that liquid plain, and lo, the arms so fair and young sank in the waters down again. They bowed before the mystic power, and as they home returned in thought, each took from thence a lotus flower in memory of the day and spot. Years, centuries have passed away, and still before the temple shrine, descendants of the peddler pay shell bracelets of the old design as annual tribute. Much they own in lands and gold, but they confess from that eventful day alone dawned on their industry success. Absurd may be the tale I tell, ill-suited to the marching times. I loved the lips from which it fell, so let it stand among my rhymes. A Casarina Tree Like a huge python winding round and round the rugged trunk, indented deep with scars, up to its very summit near the stars, a creeper climbs, in whose embraces bound no other tree could live. But gallantly the giant wears the scarf, and flowers are hung in crimson clusters all the boughs among, whereon all day are gathered bird and bee, and oft at night the garden overflows with one sweet song that seems to have no close, sung darkling from our tree while men repose. Unknown, yet well known to the eye of faith, ah, I have heard that wail far, far away in distant lands, by many a sheltered bay, when slumbered in his cave the water wraith, and the waves gently kissed the classic shore of France or Italy beneath the moon, when earth lay transit in a dreamless swoon, and every time the music rose, before mine inner vision rose a form sublime, thy form, O tree, as in my happy prime I saw thee in my own loved native clime. But not because of its magnificence, dear is the Casarina to my soul, Beneath it we have played, though years may roll, O sweet companions, loved with love intense, For your sakes shall the tree be ever dear. Blent with your images, it shall arise in memory, Till the hot tears blind mine eyes. What is that dirge-like murmur that I hear, Like the sea breaking on a shingle beach? It is the tree's lament, an eerie speech, That haply to the unknown land may reach. When first my casement is thrown open wide at dawn, my eyes delighted on it rest. Sometimes, and most in winter, on its crest, a gray baboon sits statue-like alone, watching the sunrise, while on lower boughs his puny offspring leap about and play, and far and near Cocarlus hail the day. And to their pastures wend our sleepy cows, and in the shadow, on the broad tank cast by that hoar tree, so beautiful and vast, the water lilies spring, like snow and mast. End of section one. Recording by Todd.